Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, Callum here with a quick message from our wonderful, wonderful sponsor. Your home away from home is waiting for you at each of the resident hotels in London and Liverpool. You can enjoy excellent rooms in exceptional locations with heartfelt hospitality. Whitehall Sources is brought to you in association with The Resident, thoughtfully chosen destinations within thriving cities. The Resident offers relaxed enclaves from which you can venture out to experience the city your way with The Resident's insider knowledge. Speaking of insider knowledge, Whitehall Sources starts now. A Britain that gets its future back. And I'll tell you how. We're going to transform the way Britain does its business from top to bottom. We'll modernise central government so it becomes dynamic, agile, strong and above all, focused. Hello and welcome to Whitehall Sources. I'm Callum MacDonald and here's Kirsty Buchanan, former special advisor to Theresa May. Hiya, Kirsty. Good morning from me and my stinking cold. Oh no, you've yeah. fallen. You've fallen to the cold. I have taken many a Rona test. I am sans Rona, but oh, that's I, I apologise for the slightly bunged up. I wanted to sound sort of really you know, throaty and sexy, but I just sound really bunged up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's fine. It's fine. Get well soon. Uh, Frankie <laughs> Leach is also with us, former advisor to Jeremy Corbyn when he was Labour leader. Hello, Frankie. Hello. Uh, and I've lost my cold voice. I feel like I've sort of transported it directly over to Kirsty. Goodness back, me. Baby. Gosh, when will Viral we... Viral viruses, there you go. Exactly. Uh, I thought the pandemic was over. Um, there's lots of behind-the-scenes things to tell you about today. First, um, I'm at my friend's flat in Manchester where I've been visiting for a couple of days, so if I sound like I'm in their spare room... That's where I am. Is that so you can sneak off and watch the Keir Starmer speech? That yeah, I've been I've been sussed out. I've got front <laughs> row tickets. Mm-hmm. I wasn't going to let that. I queued for hours on Ticketmaster, 
you know, I snapped them right up. I had several devices going at the same time. It was like, Checks it's my out. Glastonbury. It's my Glastonbury. Um, was there was someone hawking them outside, like, <laughs> come and listen to a man say things that he's going to renege on in a year. Oh, and, we're, and we're off and running. Uh, so ends our behind-the-scenes section. Um, also, we have uh, exceptionally busy days today, so we're going to fly through lots of stuff for you on Whitehall Sources today. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for joining the mailing list. Hello to Jack Spreadborough, who's joined the mailing list. Uh, also in the last couple of days, William Hill. Um, I wouldn't take bets on that uh, that relationship lasting. Ha ha. No, but hi, William. Thanks for being with us. Also, Adam and uh, POA. Somebody called POA has signed up to the mailing list as well. They are among our new joiners. You can join. Go to whitehallsources.com forward slash mailing list. Uh, we promise never to spam, only to bring you exciting news and updates. Of course, you can email your thoughts anytime as well. Hello at whitehallsources.com is the email address. Right, let's crack on with the aforementioned Keir Starmer. Big day for him today. He's got five pledges. Uh, on the go today. Um, he's going to be sort of targeting, I suppose, the kind of classic things, really. Uh, the economy, NHS, crime, climate, education. Uh, these are Keir Starmer's pledges. Kirsty Buchanan, how impressed are you? Well, how impressed am I? OK, so a couple of thoughts about this. Mm. One, when these started, they were five pledges. Then they became five big pledges. And now they're five mission missions. Yes. Bom, bom, bom. <laughs> so I think it's to try and disassociate himself from Rishi Sunak's own five pledges. I have thought more deeply, and therefore they are mission statements, as it were. They're all fairly kind of centrist, straightforward things, aren't they? I gather they, what sits underneath them is some much lengthier, chunkier and duller stuff about how you would deliver on these but they're all, you know, they're all of a piece. Who doesn't want a better economy, you know, a better functioning NHS, safer streets, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. As research, I went back to the original daddy of all five pledges in elections, which was New Labour's 1997 pledge card. And what I didn't realise, sorry, it's a bit of a segue, but oh, uh, it amused me greatly. I am sadly old enough to remember the New Labour five pledge card <laughs> in 1997, which was... I remember at the time being underwhelming in its aspirations, but I thought, well, you know, at least they're going for never over-promised, under-deliver. But it's quite wordy. Mm. And then they brought out two subsequent pledge cards. The language gets more and more reductive as you go along. And so they actually start with quite detailed ones. Can I just bore you with a couple of examples? Please do. This is really interesting because uh, of how these slogans work, how they evolve, and also how much nothing changes by way of political strategy, perhaps. Go on, go and bore us. Yeah, so if you start with like sort of the original 1997 ones, we have things like, bear with me while I furiously scroll through the 42 <laughs> tedious photos I've taken of it, uh, we will cut NHS waiting lists by treating an extra 100,000 patients as a first step by releasing 100 million, say, from NHS red tape. Wow. Right? Not exactly zippy and not exactly, like, high-powered either in its aspirations, we will get 250,000 under-25-year-olds off benefit and into work by using money from a windfall levy on the privatised utilities, right? So that five of these, which are all pretty uh, achievable. Then the next election, they went down to things which are a bit more reductive, like 10,000 extra teachers and higher standards in secondary schools. And by the time of the third elections, uh, new Labour pledges... We got these, which were bigger in their aspiration, utterly reductive and completely vacuous and vague. So your family better off, 
your family treated better and faster, your children achieving more, your country's borders protected, your community safer, your children with the best start. In fact, that's six pledges. There you go. But, I mean, <laughs> meaningless, untargeted, uh, and the same sort of stuff we're seeing, you know, in broad terms from both Rishi Sunak and uh, Keir Starmer now. So what's it all about? Because and we'll bring Frankie in in just a sec, but I'm just so, I mean, as is often my reference point, I go to the West Wing, where in uh, one of the episodes, President Bartlett is debating with his rival, his Republican rival. And throughout the build-up, they'd been analysing the fact that his rival, Republican, had boiled things down to 10 words. He had a 10-word answer on you know, the hot topics of the day. And so they were trying to get President Bartlett to match that. But in the debate, the Republican governor candidate delivers 10 words on something like crime. And Bartlett says, well, fine, but what are the next 10 words? And what are the 10 words after that? And the 10 words after that? Because it's never as simple as just boiling it down to 10 words or a vacuous statement or or whatever. Actually, in terms of delivering those things, is far more complex. Yeah, well, I say, why have the West Wing when you have cursed his rules of well. comms? <laughs> now, uh, I don't know if you know this, but I have many tedious rules of comms. Well, this is good. Um, and one of them is called the rule of three and the rule of five. Okay. Uh, so, in essence, uh, political messaging cut through, common thinking dictates, is three words. So that every complex issue uh, can be reduced and reducted down to, to, to three words. Otherwise, it simply refuses to get cut through in the noise of modern society. But you can't have three pledges because that feels too flimsy, uh, even for the modern cut through world. So you must have five pledges on which to build your vision thing. But your key messages are reduced down. Now, I always thought this was a modern phenomenon, right, which kind of started with sort of five pledges under New Labour and got more and more sophisticated with Linton Crosby and some of the conservative messaging. But I've done some research, Cam. Uh, I know you don't pay me to do research for white horse horses, but research I have done, nonetheless. And here's a little essay question for you. To the nearest decade... Can you tell me when Robespierre came up with the original three-word slogan for politics, which is liberty, equality and fraternity? A classic, the French slogan for life. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the- Mercifully for the French did it in English, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's true. So, OK, so to the nearest decade, um, Frankie, pile in with a guess on this. I'm going to say, oh man, I have no idea on these sorts of things. 1750, Frankie. Not bad, okay. Frankie. Frank, have you got a thought? I'm thinking it's like the 18th century. I know okay. that's not a decade. That's <laughs> certainly not a decade. That's 10 decades, in fact. I mean, like 1800 <laughs> is a decade, right? So I'll, uh, I'll go right. with that. Is, is 1800 your final answer? I reckon it is, yeah. I reckon you've won. It's oh. 1790. 1790. Yes! Look at so, that! So, there you go. So, the original three-word <laughs> cut-through messaging was designed in 1790. Whoa. And then I've looked through some other ones. We've got Bread, Peace and Land from Lenin in 1917, which, considering they confiscated all the land from the peasants and then starved millions of them, wasn't one of the greatest kind of uh, pledges oh, it's one, ever. It's one of my personal favourites, Kirsty. Uh, to shock you. It wasn't. Didn't Jeremy Corbyn borrow that one? <laughs> I'm not sure. It feels more recent. You're suggesting that we borrowed a load of policies from Lenin. <laughs> Shocking. Um, a country fit for heroes. Lloyd George bit misquoted that one, but mm. 
A chicken pot for everyone from Hoover in the 1920s Great Depression. So uh, uh, didn't stand the test of time, that one. But um, uh, And then if we jump forward to the late 20th century, the absolute gold standard of all political campaigning, which was 1979, Labour Isn't Working, which mm. had those posters of queues of people for queuing up for their, for their dole, which... Many people have tried to bastardise since. My favourite was New Labour did one which said, majorism isn't working, which I thought was just the worst and most clunky kind of adoption. Yeah. And then we had Obama, yes, we can, Mm. woo-woo. And then obviously those Brexit classics, take back control and get Brexit done. But if you will just indulge me a little bit more. Please. uh, The most overwhelming but successful campaign slogan that I've come across... And forgive anyone that speaks fluent Romanian for my accent here. Pentru o Romania normala. Okay. Which stands for for a normal Romania. A normal which was Romania. A vote for a normal Romania, which was a vote winning slogan for that's the president. Ringing alarm bells. Are we, do we know what normal stands for? It's <laughs> well, a good question. How um, fast? And then my other favourite is the ones where your three word cut through is replaced by just something that's quite witty. So, and this is the only witty thing that Gordon Brown ever did, or Gordon Brown's aides ever did, which was not Flash, just Gordon. Just Gordon. I remember that one. Um, I liked this one from Jess Phillips, which was her leadership campaign slogan, which was speak truth, win power, which I thought was great. But my all-time favourite, I don't know if you remember when uh, Trump was blurbling on about how you could (laughs) inject your lungs with bleach during the coronavirus pandemic. And uh, Biden's aides quickly came up with my favourite post of all time, which was, vote Biden, he won't make you drink bleach. <laughs> yeah. I nice. think also as well, it would be important to remember, I think... You're going to come in with a serious point now, aren't you, Frank? <laughs> um, I'm going to come in with two. For the many, caveat not the few, was one of the most popular slogans, I think, ever in British political history. And it carried a huge part of the election manifesto in the 2017 election. And I think boiling a message down is is pertinent when we think about the electoral strategy that came out from um, President Lula in Brazil, which is this fabulous quote, and it's kind of in the round of threes, which is he said, and I I don't speak Portuguese, so this is an English translation. He would fight for the rights of Brazilian people, the right to barbecue with family on the weekend, to buy a little picanha, which is a a small tasty piece of beef, to that piece of picanha with the fat dipped in flour and to a glass of cold beer. And apparently it just made the crowd absolutely raucous. <laughs> and it did just make me feel like a political slogan that argues that you have the right to a good little piece of meat, to barbecue with it and your family, and have a nice cold glass of beer. Don't we all want that? So, I mean, obviously, maybe... It's a actually super food. evocative, isn't it? I really like it. <laughs> it is, because it, so it, it paints an ideal, doesn't it? I suppose that's the thing, is where do these Keir Starmer's missions, where do Rishi Sunak's pledges... Where do these political slogans transport you? If I may, I'm going to just um, lend you one, uh, which I don't think has had enough pickup from my from my day job at Times Radio, where I said our, our new slogan for the breakfast programme should simply be, today is so yesterday. And I'll, I'll let you all dwell nice. on that. Thank you very much. So does, do Deep, Ke- yeah, thank you so much. Deep. Thank you. <laughs> Fra- do Keir Starmer's missions, Frankie, that he's unveiling today on 
the hot topics of the moment that he says will uh, be at the centre of his, you know, his, his offer to voters at the next election. Um, he said that uh, the country's been in a crouched position for many years in his, in his pre-announcement interviews and lacked the confidence to go forward. He says almost nothing seems to be working, promising to provide long-term solutions rather than sticking plaster politics. Is he capturing the same vision as offering you the chance to barbecue and, you know, access a bit of meat? It does. It evokes an ideal. It's an interesting shift in the narrative from Keir Starmer, which is that I've just Googled and his website, his electoral website still exists from when he was running as Labour leader. And people often mention the 10 pledges that Keir Starmer originally Outlined, And I think it's important, I think, to analyse the contrast between what he originally argued for and what he's now looking at. First, he argued for economic justice. Second, social justice. Third, climate justice. Four, promote peace and human rights. Five, common ownership. Six, defend migrants' rights. Seven, strengthen workers' rights and trade unions. Eight, radical devolution of power, wealth and opportunity. Nine, equality, and ten, effective opposition to the Tories, which is quite funny because arguably, if you can't do that, then what's the point? <laughs> but compare that to these five mission statements, the tone shift is so noticeable. Mm. And, you know, that platform is what he was elected on. So when people say that they find Keir Starmer to not be trustworthy, and it doesn't matter if you're kind of left, centre, right, wherever you sit there is a very good argument to say that Keir Starmer is not the man that he was elected as when he stood for Labour leader. So for me, regardless of how you feel about Keir Starmer, these new mission statements, and I agree, I mean, what he's saying is is clearly reflective of the Labour Party that he wants to lead into government. It's very different from what he originally promised. Mm. And it's hard to trust a politician like that. That's interesting. His his defence of that that I've seen around this morning is that things have changed. You know, obvious things, the pandemic, Ukraine. I mean, for how long will we blame these things? I don't know. But that's his defence. Do does that hold water for you? I don't think so, because I'll draw on something in particular, which is that he's arguing for the rights of migrants in his pledge. And I'll read you what it says, because I think language is really important. Full voting rights for EU nationals, defend free movement as we leave the EU, an immigration system based on compassion and dignity, end indefinite detention and call for the closure of centres such as Yarlswood. I mean, it pulls apart what Keir Starmer is arguing for. He's not arguing to go back into the single market. He's definitely not arguing for indefinite leave to remain um, for EU nationals now. He's changed his position about rejoining the EU. He's definitely changed his position about a second referendum. So I think that he says the political nature has changed, but that is because he has changed himself. You know, mm. the conversations that the Labour Party is having, uh, that the Shadow Cabinet is having, what MPs are having, has changed because the nature of Keir Starmer's politics has changed. And whether he actually has changed in himself is is up for discussion. But I'm not kind of punching left here, but if we're talking about messaging being important, I think that's quite difficult to land messaging when people will arguably say that there is evidence that the messaging doesn't mean anything. Mm. What about this, Kirsty? Uh, up against Sunak's pledges to halve inflation, to grow the economy, to reduce debt, to cut NHS waiting lists and to stop small boat crossings. I mean, one observation is that both are trying to fix problems caused by the Conservatives over the last few years or not dealt with by the Conservatives is perhaps a better way of uh, pushing that. 
And I wonder if there's any real difference between the two. Actually, this is a common theme at the moment. As we ramp up to an election, there's pledges, there's mission statements, but what's the difference between these two, you know, relatively boring middle-aged men? Uh, well, <laughs> I mean, in essence, it's a difference of values, isn't it, I suppose? But they are both fighting from the centre ground of British politics after a period of both parties moving further away from the centre ground of politics, both in terms of Corbyn mm. and in terms of the Conservatives under Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. So they're both putting their tanks firmly on a kind of centrist lawn, which is why they feel pretty echoish of each other. Uh, I think for me still the big difference is this, that Rishi Sunak, who is a decent, good, hard-working prime minister who has got a terrible, toxic legacy uh, to try and unpick for me, from a comms point of view, is still lacking the vision thing. OK, if you, you know, if you do these things, which are not small things to do, mm. any of them, mm. by the way, you can, you know, you can have all the reductive language you like, but the reality is these are huge, complex, in points, quite intractable problems. What does Britain look like? What are you governing for? What is... Your sunny uplands. What does it look like? What's your and barbecue? Think, What's your right to barbecue? And your yes, right to exactly. Are you offering yeah. exactly that? You know, what is your vision for for Britain and for Britons? Whilst it's all a bit disconnected from people, at least I can see Starmer moving into a vision thing, where his growth comes from creating Britain as a green energy superpower. Now. Uh, look, the irony of all of that is, for me, is there is no way you're going to do that without Liz Truss supply-side reforms, right? That's mm. the reality. You need to have a radical overhaul of planning in this country because, you know, if you need to build more offshore wind farms, more solar farms, more onshore wind farms, more small nuclear power plants, you're going to need to have a massive, massive rethink of how we handle infrastructure build in this country. It takes years mm. and years and years to get anything off the ground in this country. And one of the reasons that we're going to struggle to meet our, you know, net zero obligations, let alone become an economic superpower in the in the global green race, is because we are bedeviled by our own very weird, very English kind of pettifogging uh, planning rules. So you're going to have to do really radical stuff like presumption of planning, which actually it's much more deliverable if you're a Labour Party than if you're Conservatives, because the minute you try to do planning reform in the Conservatives, your obligatory tail wagging the dog, small rump of the Conservative Party in the Tory shires gets out there smelling salts and you have to capitulate to your own party again. So... In essence, you know, they're both centrist ground. One is still a bit kind of technocratic for me and lacking a kind of vision, and the other is moving towards a vision, but it's not a vision that connects with people. Okay. It's yeah. a, you know, the problem with the growth and productivity debate dominating the next general election is it's very hard for people to emotionally connect to it mm. and to understand the shared values of it. So I think there's still a missing component for me about... Okay, we're a we're a green growth, you know, superpower. What does that mean for me? What does that mean for my family? What it means for me and my family is it means you know reduced energy bills. It means you know I don't have to rely on the volatility of of, of foreign import markets on fossil fuels. It means that my children have a fighting chance of having clean air and a, not an ongoing kind of climate emergency. Mm. All of those values based parts of this are missing, but. 
a yeah it's just it's it it's moving in the right direction i think they both need work on them and they both need to sort of flesh out their vision thing and make it relevant to people. Coach you know, Buchanan's rules for comms, yeah, I love this. Rules for comms, well, you know, I mean, this is the point of it. You go into politics for people. You don't yes. go into it, you know, for, yeah. you know, top-level helicopter view about growth and productivity. You do it to make people's lives better. Mm. The reason you want energy security, food security, is to cut the cost of living for people. Yeah. You know, we have a crazy, you know, energy market in this country and how we buy electricity is insane. You know, let's onshore it. Let's create our own, you know, renewable energy supply. If we really, really push on radical supply side and planning reform, we can get there and we can lead the world in some of this stuff. We're a brilliant country yeah. full of incredibly talented people. You know, and then we can, you know, we can cut our own bills. We can feed our families better. Uh, and we're not at the mercy of, you know, dictator nut jobs like, Vladimir Putin. Yeah. And what he does to the global energy market. Buchanan for PM. Here is the, here endeth the lesson. If anyone can, Buchanan can. <laughs> you can have that one for free. It's not three words though, is oh, it? Sorry, no, I can't, on. you know. I'll do a and we'll distill it. We could we could do it on syllables and do Buchanan can. <laughs> yeah, that works. Uh, okay. <laughs> we'll workshop it. We'll keep workshopping it. Uh, at that point I'm afraid I've got a mic drop. Absolutely. Uh, Kirsty, thank you very much. Um, it's great to have you on, as always. Cheers, Kirsty. See ya. Bye. Bye, bye, bye. Kirsty has got a busy old day today, so thank you, Kirsty, and we will catch you. Well, actually, the three of us are going to the Kebab Awards on, on Tuesday Yes, we evening. are. And so, you know what? Just to say that for the first time in the five years that I've been going to the Kebab Awards, I'm actually going to be rooting um, for a particular kebab shop for the first time ever in the five years that I've gone. For most people who go to the Kebab Awards, it's this kind of bonkers event in Westminster where it's really a lobbying event for, you know, political people, journalists of all shades to meet and chat over kebabs. But the actual premise is that there are kebab shops that go um, to get awards from the kebab awards. And for the first time, I'll be rooting, actually listening out to see if somebody's won because Turkish Delight, which is my local kebab shop in Shorten in Manchester, where I'm from, where I visited many times with my parents, is up for an award. So if you see at the front of the room when, you know, Turkish Delight are up for their category. Me and Jeff Smith, the MP for Charlton, with a foam hand, like, woo, Turkish Delight. <laughs> you know that they've won. Well, I'm quite taken by the idea of the Kebab Awards. I've never been, but I've always heard loads. So we'll all we'll trundle along on uh, on Tuesday evening and we'll do a bit of a debrief for you on next Thursday's episode. And with that in mind, actually, make sure you're following and subscribe to the podcast. We've picked up a lot of you, actually, in the last couple of weeks, which is wonderful. Um, if I could encourage you to send the link to our podcast, to one of your friends, just one of your friends. That's all it takes. Who needs the political analysis of Frankie Leach and Kirsty Buchanan in their feed every single week? Frankly, who doesn't? You know what I mean? <laughs> Everyone needs this. Kirsty Buchanan's Rules for Calms for free. Frankie giving you the inside scoop on the British Kebab Awards next week. What's not to like? Uh, there's lots more still to come on Whitehall Sources today as well. Thanks, Kirsty. Frankie and I will continue right after this very exciting announcement. Part of serving well would be to know almost instinctively when the time is right to make way for someone else. In my head and in my heart, I know that time is now. 
marriage being between a man and a woman. That is what I practice. Look, I'm, I'm a Muslim. I'm somebody who's proud of my faith. I don't use my faith as the basis of, 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 of legislation. But I will not roll back on any rights that already exist in Scotland. My job is to bring forward policy and pursue it in the best interests of the country. If you were about at the time where you were able to legislate on this, that's been and gone now, but you would have voted against that then because of your beliefs. I would have. Hello, I'm Kyla McDonald. Welcome to a brand new podcast. This is Holyrood Sources. At a time of huge change for Scotland, we bring together the best in the business, those who have lived it and breathed it, to explain exactly what is going on. Hello, I'm Jeff Aberdeen and I was Chief of Staff to the First Minister of Scotland between 2007 and 2014. I'll analyse the entry of Scotland's next First Minister, the challenges to be overcome and opportunities to be pursued, and how they can best handle the highest office in Holyrood. Hi, I'm Andy McKeever, former Head of Communications for the Scottish Conservatives. I'll bring you insight based on a couple of decades working on campaigns and strategy for politicians and clients, and let you know what I think Scottish politics looks like after Nicola Sturgeon. The SNP's choosing its new leader. Scotland's going to get a brand new First Minister. Who will they be? What will they do? What can they achieve? What about the cause of independence? Is that dead and buried? Does it need some new life? Who can reinvigorate the campaign for yes? We'll ask our resident experts. We'll bring in guests as well. And you are always part of the conversation. Episode 1 lands Friday the 24th of February. This is Whitehall Sources, today with Kirsty Buchanan and Frankie Leach and Callum MacDonald, although, as you've already heard, Kirsty's got a busy old date. So as Frankie and I seeing you through to the end of today's episode, very happily, thanks for being with us. Make sure you follow and subscribe. We'd love, love, love for you to stay there and to be there and to be part of the podcast from here on out. And yes, as you've just heard, we now have a second sister podcast, if you, that's a really weird way of saying it. We have a spin-off podcast because of the beautiful chaos that is Scottish politics at the moment. Uh, Hollywood Sources is now available for you to subscribe to. Similar to this, we will hear from those who have been at the heart of Scottish government and you will get the best analysis on all things Scottish politics, which will crop up on Whitehall Sources too from time to time, of course. But now you have a dedicated feed for that as well. So pop over there, search for Hollywood Sources, follow and subscribe. And over the duration of the leadership campaign for the leader of the SNP um, and of course their sort of inaugural days in office I suppose uh, we will assess exactly what is going on for you We are so pleased that Whitehall Sources is your favourite podcast. Thank you for finding us. Our favourite hotel is The Resident, who have hotels in London and Liverpool. Don't just take our word for it, though, as trustworthy as sources as we might be. Take this review from Louisa from just a few weeks ago in January. She stayed in Covent Garden and said, Great location. Room was so comfortable and clean. Shower was the best we had. Mm during our month in Europe, close to shopping and restaurants and multiple tube stations too. Covent Garden is the perfect area to stay. And let's double source this, shall we? Because East Coast Will stayed at the resident in February and said, don't hesitate to book your stay here, especially if you plan to attend theatre event. It's a quiet, restful oasis, a relaxed enclave even in a very busy city. We are excited to return. So why not come to London, listen to Whitehall Sources on the way and stay at the resident for the full London experience. 
You can book your stay in the resident in London or Liverpool. Just click residenthotels.com. Right, lots more still to come on Whitehall Sources today. We've done Keir's promises, his mission statements, political messaging, the art of political messaging. And Frankie, something that you were picking up on, actually, um, uh, as part of that conversation, was just the importance of language um, in yeah. politics. Um, and Kirsty gave us, he, she boiled down her Buchanan's Rules for Comms, um, which I think is helpful. But, uh, you know, as we were saying, there is complexity to these sorts of issues, to all these sorts of issues. And uh, today... Um, we want to talk a little bit about asylum seekers as well. Now, let me just give you the news line on this, first of all. 12,000 asylum seekers to the UK are to be considered for refugee status without face-to-face interviews. Uh, They're instead going to get a 10-page questionnaire from the Home Office, which will decide the cases of people from Afghanistan, Eritrea, Libya, Syria and Yemen, who applied before last July. This is all about dealing with the backlog, which has hit a record, well, 161,000 really, in the year to December 2022. We'll get into the language of these sorts of things in a mo. I think, first of all, just a big picture analysis of the idea of, I guess, streamlining the process for 12,000 people who have come from the aforementioned countries, Frankie. Is this a sensible approach to tackling the backlog? I mean, I am not an expert, on migrant rights. So I kind of take my analysis on this from people that are from organisations like Refugee Council and JCWI, which is the Joint Council for the Welfare of Immigrants. And what they say is that although this is a step in the right direction, which is taking the backlog seriously, there are real concerns about how this is going to be delivered, which is that if you send a letter with extremely important information, with a deadline to return it, to a lot of asylum seekers in English, as in the letter is in English, Mm. who might not speak fluent English. Imagine the kind of legal jargon that is going to be in that kind of form in that letter. It would need to be translated. All of this needs to be done within a time limit and to then be returned to the Home Office. Often recounting the details of why you're seeking asylum is extremely traumatic, it's upsetting. These forms need to be filled in in a particular way to be able to highlight the evidence of your case. They're usually done via interview. So it's changing the format of how to get this information. It's never been done before. If I try to kind of give evidence to you about something that was extremely traumatic and concerning, and at the end of it, you would be making a decision that is essentially life or death for lots of people who are seeking asylum. Personally, I would rather do it in person than on a form because, you know... If English isn't your first language and you're having to write something in English, there's all sorts of issues around translation, etc. To give a kind of human face to this, as you know, I I work with asylum seekers, Mm. I volunteer with asylum seekers, and I I rang a guy that I know from Eritrea this morning to let him know that this form might be coming to him. Mm -hmm. And this is the thing, you know, they're kind of suggesting that these letters are going to go out to a certain amount of people There's no guarantee that everybody from those countries will receive one. So can you imagine the feeling if you're in an asylum-seeking hotel and you're from Eritrea and your friend who you've met during this journey in this hotel is also from Eritrea, one of you gets the letter in the form and one of you gets your asylum claim approved, but you end up staying in a hotel for months more, even though you've already been there for a year. Mm. So it's very difficult to kind of actually put into words, you know, how traumatic these situations are and how much care and attention they need. Um, If it helps to remove the backlog of asylum cases, personally, I think it's a good thing. 
But I worry about the management and the way the Home Office are going to deal with this because they've got such a bad track record of processing these claims. They've got record, they've got evidence before of of sending people incorrectly back to places that they've claimed asylum from because they've rejected an asylum claim that actually under appeal would have been approved. So let's see. But again, if you're interested in in looking more at this, I would encourage people to look at organisations like Refugee Council and JCWI because as... We've said messaging is super important and lots of people are kind of on social media challenging the language that we're using about migrants. And I think, you know, this decision is happening at a time when we've just had the Nosley incident as well. And and language is important in these conversations. I just want to add a little bit of more detail on this plan. So the five countries that we mentioned have been chosen because they have the highest approval rate of any groups of asylum seekers in the UK. So that's more than 95%. Only adults will be covered by the scheme. And obviously it's trying to get people out of hotels and out of their sort of temporary situations. And I suppose there's something laudable in that, isn't there? Because living a life in limbo in hotels without any sort of formal approval or formal process happening must be absolutely, truly awful. And so to try and try and see the back of that is is something that we should be encouraging. Absolutely. But an easier way to do that would be to not put people in hotels in the first place. I mean, the taxpayer is footing an astronomical bill to put asylum seekers in hotels um, that they don't don't need to be in hotels. Uh, Obviously, we've spoken before about the fact that hotel gives off the impression that they're staying in, you know, five-star luxury accommodation. Actually, the conditions in a lot of these hotels are, you know, nothing that anyone would want to live in, never mind people who are extremely traumatised. Of course, I agree that we should be processing claims quicker. But the whole point of this is that the government has acknowledged that these countries have an exceptionally high rate of acceptance. So why have these people had to wait a year? It's because we've got these extremely long, drawn out processes where because of government um, ineptness, to be honest, um, it takes a year to essentially look at an asylum claim that the government itself has said they know will be highly likely to be accepted. That is the hallmark of a broken system. And it goes much wider than these countries that they've outlined Mm. and i think the children point in particular is pertinent because the guardian released a story a couple of weeks ago that said that children from countries like albania who importantly are exempt from this announcement that they've made in terms of fast-tracking applications um, and going past the interview stage to actually just formally approve via letter evidence um are not involved in the scheme so what happens to all those children who the government have itself have acknowledged are extremely vulnerable in these hotels. I mean, this whole system is not fit for purpose. So although I applaud the fact they're trying to get these cases heard quicker, Mm. much more work needs to be done. Um, Interesting as well, then, just in terms of the language question, which I know we want to talk about, and let's do that now. I I was noting just in terms of the coverage of this today, uh, which is perhaps my my comfort zone, um, you can kind of see differences in the coverage. And it's It's perhaps predictable, but I think these things are often worth pointing out anyway. Um, So this from The Guardian, sort of the tone is about, you know, a crackdown forcing refugees to complete a complicated questionnaire in English within 20 days or get kicked out. Um, Some people describing it as an amnesty in all but name uh, that waves through 12,000 people on the back of this short questionnaire with no interview. You can sort of get that coverage from places like The Mail and The Telegraph this morning. I think in, in terms of the coverage, the analysis has actually probably been quite sceptical from, from all sides. Either it's it's not a good system in terms of it makes it too easy, or it's not a good system in terms of it makes it too difficult, depending on your own 
uh, kind of political viewpoint. Um, there was one Tory MP on Times Radio this morning saying, this is not taking back control. Uh, so that slogan, just to tie everything together, um, is back on the back on the round as well. Um, an anonymous Tory backbencher to political this morning. No matter how people want to dress this up, this is an amnesty and will cause an outcry in many constituencies. Rishi will become the poster boy for the smuggling gangs and encourage yet more to come across the channel. And I suppose this does lead us into your 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 question and indeed concerns, I think it's fair to say, Frankie, around language used in, in these sorts of situations. Absolutely. And I think just to touch on the quote that you just said mm. from the, the Conservative MP, I mean, you can't win on asylum because no. people are complaining about how much it's costing to house asylum seekers in hotels. So the government acknowledges this and then tries to expedite the claims. And I'm definitely not defending the government's approach to asylum, but just to point out on the language... This whole process is about getting people out of hotels and reducing those bills. And so that's what the Conservative MPs have been asking for. But now they're complaining that that essentially means that more asylum seekers are potentially going to have their cases approved and then will be released into wider society. And I think unpicking the language there is important because it sounds to me like the actual complaint is that they don't want asylum seekers en masse to be in the UK. Mm. They want small boat crossings to become so dangerous, so difficult, that it deters people from trying to come to the UK to claim asylum. And the argument that approving asylum claims will encourage people to come is a nonsense because the whole argument is people don't get in super dangerous boats where people die on crossings to come to the UK unless what they're fleeing from is is more dangerous than that journey. So people will travel and try and claim asylum regardless of the blockages that people put up, it will just make it more difficult and more dangerous. And the whole point that people say about putting asylum seekers in hotels mm. is that, yes, it is a cost on the taxpayer. So a really good way to reduce those costs, get people working in society, learning English, allow asylum seekers to work whilst they're waiting for their claims to be heard. It will contribute to society. But we're talking about a war of language here, which is why I referenced Keir Starmer's original pledges, because yeah. he talked about migration and it was a very progressive line on migration. And now he's done a total 360. And I read something very interesting in a book yesterday called Border Nation by Leah Cowan, who used to be the political editor at Galdem and now works for a refugee rights charity, where she said that the argument about things like small boats and the language that people use, which is that the public wants caps on immigration, they want the end of small boats, they're worried about immigration, doesn't actually talk about the fact that there has to be a reason why the public is worried, which is where political messaging is so important. Because if you, for years, as a politician or as a society, say we have got a lot of problems in this country and there is one group to blame, or at least you indicate that there is a group that is responsible for a drain on resources in society. If you keep repeating that message over and over again, it will stick in people's minds. Does the message and then if you put them all in a focus group together, yeah. they will say, I am worried about immigration because they've been told to, to be, be worried, worried about immigration. Yeah. Does exactly. The, does the messaging then actually need to be more effective and actually more, and I'm going to use this word, inclusive, because... Is there, isn't there isn't there a general principle here that actually there is cruelty in not having a good system because of the problems we see now? People live their lives in limbo. That is 
patiently cruel and unfair. Of course. And so there's that side of it. But then also you have to um, you have to acknowledge the concerns of those who see people arriving in into the UK without any sort of due process, as they might see it, or their concerns about what process exists. So there's an acceptance that some sort of system needs to exist in order that we avoid cruelty on all sides. Is that is that a better sell than scaring people, actually? Is that this we need a system that works for those who are trying to come to the UK and those who are already in the UK to feel like there is a system in place that alleviates concerns from all sides. I mean, of course it's better to not scare people when it comes to asylum, but I would unpick the thing about why are people scared? And it's because of the language that's been circulating for years about asylum. It's making people feel like immigration and asylum and having more people in the UK from other countries is a topic to be scared about. And I would myth bust that it's it's not. Obviously, we cannot deny that there is a growing sentiment in the UK from certain people mm. that they want less immigrants and they want less immigration. I don't know how to fix that, but I would argue that what doesn't help is politicians essentially reaffirming the, the idea that immigration is something to be scared of. And let's look at the facts. We've got farmers who are saying that, you know, their crops are just sat there rotting because they don't have enough seasonal labour, a job that is typically done by migrants, usually from the EEA. And since Brexit, that source of labour has stopped. So the idea that Britain is full and that there isn't jobs and resources um, for these extra people is a nonsense because that whole situation was proved by that, which is that we wanted, and I say we, not me, I mean people who argued that Brexit would be a good stop for the unwanted immigration that we saw, that it would be better, that Britain would be better off without these immigrants. Mm. But actually what it's shown is that a huge part of British industry, which is farming and agriculture, has been massively impacted by that lack of seasonal labour, which came because of immigration. So then what do you do if you're a political messenger? How do you deal with that? You find another way to blame that issue on something else. And what I would say is that this whole thing about immigration being scary is a kind of melting pot of lots of different threads of societal issues that have been labelled as a problem because of immigration. What should Keir Starmer's message be? And if we were to try to base it on the Buchanan principles of comms, is there a simple <laughs> message? Is there a simple message that can be effective on this issue, in your view? I think that, and I'll sound like a kind of liberal lefty here, but it's how I feel. Um, we need to bring back messages of humanity, which is to find the common thread of humanity between a group of immigrants on a boat or asylum seekers on a boat coming to the UK and a group of struggling working class white people in a northern town, which is that we have more in common than what divides us. And also, I wouldn't be myself without mentioning the fact that we need to start looking at the root cause of most of the societal problems in the UK, mm. which is poverty, wealth inequality, issues with taxes, the underfunding of local communities. Uh, the reason why your local library has closed or it's too expensive to send your child to daycare is not because of a group of Eritrean asylum seekers who are fleeing the most horrendous persecution you can imagine, who are trying to come and stay and settle in the UK and join your communities. It's because of critical underfunding, problems with poverty, 
and an issue that we've seen with wealth inequality, which has been going on in this country for years. And that, for me, is something that Keir Starmer is missing. Now, I know that lots of people won't agree with that, but it's a crucial point, which is that immigration and asylum seekers don't cause poverty. You know, they are often very poor when they come to the UK because they've left everything they have behind. But for people in working class communities, ones that I grew up in, it's not immigrants that are stealing your jobs. It's the fact that, uh, for example, a local steel plant has closed in Scunthorpe this weekend. That's not because there's a load of Eritreans stealing those jobs. It's because of a business decision, which is that they've closed production down in the UK. The issue is, is that for me, that kind of far right ideology around blaming people is that instead of blaming the people responsible, which is governments and industries, we blame immigrants because it's easy. Mm. And that is something that I would like Keir Starmer to challenge, which is that we do have problems with poverty in this country and they need to be solved, which is that we need to get rid of wealth inequality rather than put a block on immigration. Frankie, it's so interesting to actually just spend a few minutes chatting to you about this, because this is, you know, without trivialising, this is your specialist subject, isn't it? You know, this is what you do. Um, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's not just my specialist subject. It's because I care. Yeah, like, I care I about that. white working class people in poverty. And I also care about, you know, Eritreans, Afghans fleeing war and persecution. And mm. it is possible politically to do both. And that is why I'm a Labour member, because I feel that our place in the political ecosystem is that we should be arguing that. Mm. And I am sad because we aren't anymore. And many people who voted for Kistama will feel the same because at the start, he was someone arguing for that and he has let people down. Please email your thoughts on the really interesting conversation we've just had. Um, you can email us anytime. It's hello at whitehallsources.com uh, to get in touch on email. And join our mailing list while you're online as well. Go to whitehallsources.com forward slash mailing list. I think that just about does it for today then. We've done uh, Buchanan's Rules of Comms. We've done a bit of advice for Keir Starmer on sorting out migration and messaging around migration particularly as well. Your thoughts on all we've talked about, very welcome. And while you're listening, while you're on your podcast app or uh, listening online or whatever, make sure you pop over to Hollywood Sources. Subscribe to that brand new podcast that we're establishing uh, to see us through the SNP leadership campaign as Scotland works out who the next First Minister will be. Uh, we'll guide you every step of the way, and some of that will appear on Whitehall Sources as well. Fear not, some of those uh, conversations will get Kirsty and Frankie to analyse for us too. Thanks for being with us on Whitehall Sources today. It's lovely to spend time with you. Thanks for following, thanks for subscribing. We're off to the Kebab Awards on Tuesday evening. The full debrief on next Thursday's podcast. We'll speak to you then. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.